0: Good morning, everybody. Let's see if we've been in a a situation like this before. Let's say you go out to eat, with your spouse, maybe it's on a date, go to a restaurant, hypothetically, it's Outback Steakhouse, and uh, you sit down, you look at the menu, you know exactly what you want to order, and so you order it. Let's say you hypothetically, you order a sirloin with baked potato and steamed broccoli because you know that's going to be delicious and that's what you want to eat tonight, But your date, she, I mean they, look through the menu, and they order something unusual, hypothetically, some Mediterranean marinated filet, and you're pretty sure she, I mean they, are not going to like it, but you say whatever. So they order it, and then this happens. The food comes out. Yours tastes exactly like you thought it would, because that's why you ordered it. And then your date just kind of tries it and pokes at it with their fork, and Says, wow, yours looks really good. Mine's okay. And you know they want deep down for you to share your meal. Maybe even switch meals entirely. Hypothetically speaking, I think we've all been in a similar kind of situation like that before. We have watched as discontent has taken root in somebody in our lives. Could have been a spouse or date. It could have been your kids. Could have been a coworker. We've watched this. It's kind of just a human thing. We're fickle creatures, and we want what we don't have. Discontent is something that so easily takes root in our lives, and it's kind of silly to poke at and laugh at and inconsequential things. But it can also take root in more serious matters of our lives, like our relationships, even our marriages. We're going to be talking about that this morning. Now, I realize not everybody is married, and you may be tempted to think, oh, great, a marriage sermon. What's this got to do with me? Well, a lot actually. We're going to watch a condition of the human heart. Jesus exemplifies it through marriage, but he also talks about it singleness as well. And so, this is something that transcends circumstances. This discontent is what we're looking at as we continue this series through Matthew, called "A Year-ish with Jesus," where we're just walking through the Gospel of Matthew. We started last December. We'll end sometime in April. And we're just looking at what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a part of his kingdom, listening to what he has to say and to teach. And today we're going to continue by looking at Matthew chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew 19 to follow along. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind, or you can download the FCC Mammoth app to your mobile device. Tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our Sermon Notes tool that has an outline of our message this morning, complete with our passage broken down, ready for you to engage with so you don't have to flip back and forth in Scripture, because we're going to look at a couple different passages today. Like we said, discontent can be a serious affliction of the human heart, particularly when it becomes centered or focused on our relationships, our marriages. When we focus on the challenges— of our marriages. It becomes easy for discontent to take root and to germinate. And Jesus kind of points that out in our passage today. Little context, just so we all know where, what's happening. Jesus has entered into the region of Judea by Matthew chapter 19. And in the region of Judea is located the city of Jerusalem. And from here on out, as the gospel progresses, we're going to get closer and closer to the city of Jerusalem, that city where Jesus will eventually be crucified for the forgiveness of our sins and will change your life and my life and every life forever. That's what's coming. We're kind of in the beginning stages of the home stretch this morning. And so when he enters Judea, these religious leaders, they come up to him and they ask him a question, not in earnest, but in an attempt to try to trip him up or discredit him in some way because he gave the wrong answer. And they've tried this before. It didn't work real well, but they're going to try it again. And so here's the question that they ask him. This is chapter 19, starting in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So again, they come to discredit him and they ask this question, which seems like maybe an unusual question if you really want to trip Jesus up and try to discredit him and and maybe like get people to not like him so much. Because there were a lot of issues happening in this culture at this time. There were a lot of political issues because the Roman Empire was occupying Israel, and and there was the question of, how do we respond to that? Do we play ball? Do we, you know, do what they ask? Do we revolt and rebel? And there were several different political factions that had developed during this time period because of this contentious issue. What better question to ask Jesus if you want to make people angry at him than just ask, what's your opinion of politics, right? But they didn't. They could have asked about the social issues because Jesus crossed a lot of social boundaries. You know, he, he had dinner with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and tried to bring people into the kingdom of God that good religious people were not supposed to associate with. Seems like there's a lot of potential there to try to stir some discontent and some dissent up against Jesus, but they don't. They asked this question about when is it permissible to divorce? That's because in the background of this, there was a cultural debate happening. There were two rabbis Uh, A little before the days of Jesus, but their debate kind of continued on for several generations. One was named Rabbi Shammai, and one was named Rabbi Hillel. And they were debating the meaning of a passage in Deuteronomy 24, where God says, here's how you are to go about issuing a certificate of divorce. And and they were asking this question, when is it permissible to divorce your spouse? Rabbi Shammai, he was the little more liberal of the two. He said, for any and every reason that a man might be displeased with his wife, he may divorce his wife. You burn his toast, you gone. You shrink his boxers in the wash, see ya. Right? You just use a bad tone of voice. Marriage over, dunzo. Like Shemai was a little crazy. And then there was Hillel. He was more conservative of the two. And his opinion was anything outside of marital unfaithfulness is not a good enough reason. Y'all need to just be adults and work it out. And so that was Hillel's opinion. And so this conversation was going back and forth. And the reason that these Pharisees asked Jesus this particular question was because this was a conversation that was very uh, prevalent and accessible for almost everybody. A lot of these other issues, political things, social things, they're a little more complicated and nuanced. I mean, you think about it in our day and age. There's a lot of issues happening in our country and in our world today. And a lot of them we might have opinions on, but they're kind of complicated, nuanced subjects that maybe you need some specialized knowledge to have an informed opinion about. Like geopolitics, that's a little complicated. I got an opinion, it may not be a good one though. Or like uh, monetary theory, and is the Fed doing the right thing by raising interest rates in order to combat inflation? Again, I've got an opinion. It's probably not an informed one though, because that's kind of a nuanced subject matter. But do you know what issue happening in our country today, I and pretty much everybody can have a legitimate opinion on? Things are expensive. Like gas, that's expensive. Bread, eggs, those are expensive. I got a letter in the mail this week. You may have gotten one if you live in Monmouth where our energy rates are probably going to increase by like 50 to 60 percent next year. Power is expensive, right? Like, all of this stuff is expensive, and it doesn't matter if you're a doctor, a lawyer, if you're a waitress, if you're retired, if you're unemployed. That's something that everybody is impacted by, everybody experiences, and everybody can have a legitimate opinion on because it's part of my everyday life. That's a very accessible issue. And that's what this conversation about marriage and divorce was. It was very accessible because this was the cultural conversation happening in Jesus' day. And that's kind of sad when you think about it. Because it wasn't a conversation about the merits of marriage and how it's good for society. And it wasn't a conversation of, hey, how do we make our marriages stronger? How do we make our marriages a better picture of what God designed? It was, when can we walk away? Where's the line when I've tried hard enough and now we can call it quits and hang it up? And the sad part is this isn't even a new conversation. Remember, this whole conversation, this debate between these rabbis was over Deuteronomy chapter 24. That's a chapter that was written in the days of Moses, some 1,500 years before Jesus. Meaning that for a millennia and a half, people have been debating this question of when can we quit? When can we hang it up? When have we tried hard enough? And it continues on in the days of Jesus, it continues on into our own era to some extent. Though in our culture, the issue's more settled from a legal standpoint. No fault divorce means that we can marry or divorce for for any reason or no reason. And for all this conversation about divorce, that's not really the topic of our our conversation this morning. If you do want to hear more about that, I recommend we had a message back in March, about mid-March, on Matthew chapter 5, where we dealt with a a sensitive issue in a more sensitive way because we had more time. What I want to draw attention to here, rather, is a condition of the human heart. Why is it That from the days of Moses to the days of Jesus to the days of here and now, we have asked and wrestled this same question of when is it permissible to call it quits? I want to look at the human heart and what happens when discontent settles in because that's actually what Jesus does in response to this question. They ask him, when is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus' response, we'll read it in a minute. He goes back to the creation story. And he says, look, when God made man and woman, he made them to be together, and he made them to be together forever. That's his intention. But that's kind of confusing, because there is that passage in Deuteronomy 24. And so the Pharisees, they have this follow-up question in verse 7. They say, why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Again, we actually cover that passage in more sensitive and thorough detail back in March. So I'd encourage you to look through the podcast and find that. But here's how this this story unfolds. The Pharisees say, yes, Jesus, God made marriage a good thing. But then in Deuteronomy, he gives all these instructions for how to go about a divorce. So he must be okay with it, right? And Jesus says, no, actually. Divorce was happening before God's law was stepped in. Y'all were tearing your families apart way before you started to follow him in the law of Moses. He handed you this law to try to mitigate the damage. Try to make things a little less painful because your hearts had become hard. A discontent had settled in. And it caused them to, to really look over the blessings of marriage. To focus on the challenging. To become unsatisfied or dissatisfied with this blessed union that they were in. And that challenge of the human heart, that's one that we deal with today as well. There are a lot of challenges in a marriage. Sometimes it's challenges of personality. You know, it's just, you're two different people trying to be a family and make a go of it. There's challenges to overcome there. Sometimes it's external factors. You know, life happens, things get complicated, money's tight, there's families are at each other. So there's some complicated stuff that can make marriage challenging. But one persistent challenge that I think we all deal with to some extent and degree is the challenge of independence. When we're single, we're independent. Our lives are our own. Our time, our money, our priorities, our dreams, and our vision for life. Nobody really gets to speak into that. We just kind of chart our own course, and that is part of our prerogative. But when we're married... That's not the case anymore. We're no longer independent. We're what we're going to call interdependent. We are two individuals with individual identities, but our lives are entangled to the point that we're kind of dependent upon each other. And all of a sudden, issues of time and money and priority and hopes and dreams and a vision for our life, it's not just a matter of me anymore. And yet, in our culture and in our world, and even in our own flesh, we desire that independence sometimes. We want what we don't have. We become discontent, not realizing things have to change when we enter into this blessed union. For example, I bought a life insurance policy recently. When I was single, that was the furthest thing from my mind. What do I need a life insurance policy for, right? And now I do, because my beard's getting gray. And as my wife likes to point out, my hair's getting thin. And to me, that means I got one foot in the grave already, so I got business to take care of. And I'd love to spend those premiums in a different way, like to buy an impractical blue sports car, for instance. That'd be fantastic. But that's just not the way it goes. Money's not about me. What I'd rather spend it on is not about me. Even my death isn't even just about me anymore, because I'm not single, I'm not independent, I'm interdependent, I'm married. And that's the challenge sometimes of being in that relationship, our flesh. We desire that independence. We desire to do things our way, what we want, when we want, how we want. And that's just not our station in life anymore. That is a desire of the flesh that needs to be tamped down and tamed. Because if allowed to run free, it will only create discontent and dissatisfaction. It will harden our hearts and we will begin to ponder the same question that they asked in the days of Moses and they asked in the days of Jesus. You know, how hard do I have to try? How far do I have to go? How much do I have to give up before I can say I gave it a legitimate go and we're just going to call it quits? One of the worst things we can do for our marriages is to think and act as if we are single and independent. Our time would be much better spent focusing on how God describes marriage and its blessing and pursuing what we call interdependence and nurturing that. Again, interdependence meaning that you, you are an individual, you have an identity, you don't disappear when you're married, but your life very much is not your own. It is inseparably entangled and intertwined with this other person. And that's what Jesus describes when he answers that initial question that the Pharisees ask. When is it permissible, uh, or is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Here's his response. He goes back to the creation story. This is chapter 19, verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh, and therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. He describes the purpose of a a marriage union, a man and a woman, they leave and they cleave. They leave their family of origin, they cleave to one another. And it's interesting, when you look at ancient Jewish practices in the first century, about the time Jesus was talking, men didn't actually leave their mother and father's home. In fact, intergenerational households were very common, because like, again, things were expensive, and there were farm things to take care of, and that was just their culture, and so the leaving that Jesus is speaking about isn't necessarily want of proximity, though I highly recommend it. Uh, he is talking about really a matter of priority. And especially in ancient Jewish culture where one of the great commandments is honor your mother and father. That family of origin is your top priority. And yet something amazing and, and almost shocking happens when you're married. That top priority handed down from God, it changes. And the top priority is now this new family that we are establishing and growing and nurturing. And the intimacy shared between a man and a woman, that cleaving, he calls one flesh. And obviously there are sexual overtones to that. But that sexual expression is just really a physical manifestation of all the other entanglements that are happening in that relationship. Mental, spiritual, and emotional. The physical is just a momentary expression. This entangling of two people into one life that is shared, that is interdependent upon one another. You might think about it like this. This, uh, this picture, if you can put it up there, Steve. This is a beautiful table. It's one of those live-edge resin tables. I'm sure you've seen something like this before. Uh, they're just gorgeous. I, maybe one day I'll make one. I aspire to make a table like that. I'll just say that. And to construct a table like this, you take your live-edge lumber and you position it however you want, and then you put it in a mold or you dam up the edges and you pour your resin in the middle of that. But in this particular application, that resin begins as two separate chemicals. You got chemical A, you got chemical B. And they're independent of one another. They're shelf stable. They're not going to like corrode or explode. Well, I mean, they might. But like, they're not going to like cease to exist apart from one another. They're fine. But when you pour them together, something incredible happens. <clears throat> On a chemical level, these two compounds, they, they become so entangled and intertwined with one another. They are inseparable. You can't put them in bottles of A and B anymore. They are one in so many ways. And when they are mixed together well, they produce something that is durable and resilient and beautiful. And I think that's a great metaphor for what Jesus is talking about here with this one flesh relationship in marriage. You've got two individual people, and they're individuals. They exist fine apart from one another, but when you mix them together in this covenant of marriage, something happens. Where their lives and their being and their spirit and their mind and their emotion and their hearts become so inseparably entwined and entangled with one another. They make something new. They make a marriage. They make something that is durable and strong and beautiful. That's what Jesus is describing here. And that's something that we get to participate in and nurture as married people. But when we long for singleness... When we long, well, we probably don't long for singleness, we long for independence. When we long to be that individual who does not answer or correspond or or live life together entangled with this other person, I'm going to indulge how I want to live and what I want to do on my time, on my terms, and so on, we are working against that union. We're working against what God has fundamentally entangled and intertwined. This interdependence is challenged by this independence. And that is only going to create discontent and hardness in our hearts. Because we cannot nurture a one flesh kind of unity while also nurturing my individual flesh separately and independently. It just doesn't work that way. So how can we nurture this kind of intimacy and this kind of one flesh entanglement? Lots of ways we might do that, but if you're looking for something practical, here's what I would encourage every husband, every wife listening today to participate in. Find some way to serve your spouse this week. It's not impossible, but it is really hard to be focusing on ourselves and our own flesh whenever we are giving our time and our energy into serving the one that we love. When you are focused on someone else, it's hard to focus on yourself. And this might look a dozen different ways, you know. Maybe your spouse has a household chore they just really hate doing. Maybe you put in the extra effort, you do that chore for them just to say, hey, I love you. Or maybe you go out to eat to your spouse's favorite restaurant. Maybe you even switch meals with them if they don't like what they ordered, right? You serve them in that way. Or maybe you don't know how to serve your spouse. Maybe simply just having that conversation very openly and vulnerably. Asking, what is the best way that I can serve you or that I can love you this week? And maybe just that conversation of openness and transparency is what will facilitate that kind of deeper intimacy, that emotional, spiritual connection. You play your cards right, maybe the physical. I'm not making promises. But that's how intimacy is built. It's through serving one another and loving the other person more than yourself. That's a beautiful picture of this interdependent relationship that Jesus calls marriage. Now, Not everybody's married. I get that. Sometimes I preach a marriage sermon and I hear back from people, ugh, not another marriage sermon. This doesn't apply to me. And there's different reasons why we might not be married. Maybe we choose not to be. Maybe we didn't choose to be. Who knows? But I want you to know that marriage is not the only blessed circumstance in life. God actually has a blessing and a purpose for our singleness as well. Just as there are challenges in marriage, there's challenges in singleness. But just as there are blessings in marriage, there's blessings in singleness as well. And that's probably why Jesus mentions it in the same conversation. We want to skip towards the bottom a little bit. This is chapter 19, verse 10. It says, The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it's better not to marry. To which Jesus said, Yeah. Yeah. No, he said, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Meaning, it's not for everybody, but you know what? If you can live single, there's advantages to it. He goes on to say that, for there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And the one who can accept this should accept it. So what's a eunuch? That's not something we talk about a whole lot. So in the ancient world, um, and really for a long period in the ancient world, but even in the days of Jesus to some extent, if a man was put in charge of uh, the royal harem, that being the collection of the king's wives and concubines, or if a man was a personal assistant or attendant to the queen or some royal woman, uh, most times he would be castrated. uh, Just to sort of, it is an insurance policy that no funny business was going to take place in that sort of arrangement. And as a result, Eunuchs tended to be very trusted individuals. They had a reputation for being trustworthy, and it wasn't uncommon for them to occupy pretty high stations uh, within royal um, arrangements and government institutions. So, when Jesus is talking about eunuchs, he says there are some that are ma- that are born that way, meaning just you know for whatever reason, medically speaking, biologically, whatever, they're not able to participate in sex. He says there are some who are made that way. That would be the situation that we described earlier. And then what's probably more relevant for us, he says, there's some who choose to live that way for the sake of the kingdom of God. Meaning there are some who, for medically speaking, it could participate in a sex act, that'd be fine, but they choose not to. They choose to live a celibate and chaste life. And they do this, he says, for the kingdom of heaven. Meaning there's a purposeness to a, or there, yeah, there's a purposeness and an intentionality to a single life. God has something in store for that. There is this opportunity to serve, to focus, to live in a way that is unique and is blessed, that is different from the way that married people live. The Apostle Paul, he kind of elaborates on this a little bit. He himself was a single man who chose to live this way chose to live chaste and celibate. He writes about it in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I'd like you to be free from concern. And an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs and her aims to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world and how she can please her husband. In both instances, Paul says when, when you're married, there is a, a split focus or a split priority. And there should be. That's not a bad thing. When you're married, you should be concerned about how you can love and care for your spouse. However, what Paul says is that the unmarried don't have this split focus. And there is a blessing. There is an advantage and a benefit in that. I was reading a a commentary, not a commentary, an article uh, from a man named John Lee. He himself is a single man. He was reflecting on this passage and his own experiences as a single person in this world. And as he thought about it, he distilled the blessings of singleness into, I think, three points worth. And I just wanted to share them with you. One, he says that the unmarried, they have the blessing of focus. It's focus to know the Lord and to grow in your relationship with the Lord in a way that is unique from our married counterparts. Now, if you're married, you should get to know the Lord. You should grow in your relationship, pursue Him in your walk. But That can be really challenging to do when your spouse also needs your attention, or you've got kids running around while you're trying to do your morning devotionals. It can be incredibly distracting, or you're running here and there trying to make sure that the affairs of the kids and everybody's taken care of. With the unmarried, there is a benefit. There's a focus. You still have things to do in life. Nobody's saying your life is easy and peaches and cream, but there are fewer distractions, and there is a potential to really focus on Christ and to grow in him in a way that unmarried, or that marrieds Do not possess. He also says, John Lee saying, one of the second benefits would be a flexibility in life. One of the most common phrases that married people often say is, let me check with my spouse first. And that should be a very common phrase because, again, our lives are intertangled with one another. My time, my energy, my priorities, all of that, that's not just mine to do with as I please because it's going to impact this other person that I'm connected to. When we're single, we don't have that connection. We have flexibility, meaning if somebody needs help, I don't have to check with my spouse and say, hey, what time is dinner going to be ready or do we have to get the kids to ninja class or whatever? I can just go. If there's a ministry opportunity and somebody needs assistance, or I need to encourage somebody, or somebody had a a tragic life experience, they just need somebody to sit with them. I don't have to clear schedules and make sure that I, you know, I get the kids tucked in on time. I can just go. There's a tremendous flexibility when it comes to singleness that married counterparts do not possess. And there is blessing in that. And finally, John, he mentions that maybe one of the great blessings is freedom. And that's not just freedom of time and freedom of money and freedom of energy and so on. It's freedom from concern, freedom of worry and anxiety for your spouse. Because when you are intrinsically connected and inseparably intertwined, you're not just shouldering your own burdens anymore, you shoulder the burdens of someone else as well. And their stresses and their heartaches. And their problems and their challenges become your heartaches and your burdens and your challenges as well. Unmarried, we do not shoulder that extra burden. There's a freedom from that, there's a freedom from the marriage vow. When we take our marriage vow seriously, we need to understand that sometimes things are for better, but some things are for worse. And sometimes life is for richer, but sometimes life is for poorer. Sometimes life is in health, but sometimes it's in sickness. And when we make that vow, we are inseparably bound to this person and the challenges that may unfold in the road ahead. And there is beauty in that. But let's be honest, there's challenge in that as well. Unmarried, there is freedom from that vow. And that can be a blessing, and that can be a gift. You see, when we're married, sometimes our flesh, we long for that independence, and that independence can cause discontent. But when we're single, that independence is a blessing and is a gift. It is a freedom that we get to indulge in, that we get to participate in, not to nurture our own selfish desires, but to serve others. And our service, it looks a little different than our married counterpart, but it is service nonetheless. In fact, if we want to discover that this kind of blessing in our singleness, that's what I would encourage us to participate in is service. Maybe there's a family member that needs an extra hand or that needs a little help or that needs you to just emotionally be there for them right now. You have the freedom and the flexibility to be able to do that. Maybe there's a ministry at church. You have the opportunity, the freedom, and the flexibility to participate in that. Maybe, there's, maybe you got a, a neighbor lady or a neighbor guy that just needs a little extra hand. you got some extra time, and you, you don't have the, the burdens to shoulder somebody else's issues. And so, You can go. You've got the flexibility and the freedom to do that. I would encourage you to find some way to serve, because it's through service that we tamp down the selfish individuals or the selfish aspects of our flesh, and we find the blessing of what God intended this relationship to be. So here's the Takeaway. Whether we are married or single, God calls us to live a particular kind of life, a life that is not focused on ourselves. Whether we are married or we are single, there are going to be challenges, unique challenges to either, but there are also going to be blessings, unique blessings in both. You see, God did not create one greater than the other. God created married. He created single. He created counterparts for different people to walk different roads, And if we're married, we are called to serve. That service looks like serving your spouse, giving yourself away to nurture that entanglement that you have. If you're single, God calls us to serve still. Just like Jesus talks about for the good of the kingdom of God, to serve others, to give yourself away. And it's through those that we realize why God has put us on this planet. It's not to indulge ourselves, It's not to nurture the fleshly desires within, but rather it's to give ourselves away in whatever, whatever circumstance or situation we may find ourselves in. That's how we keep our heart, our heart from becoming hard. That's how we stop becoming discontent with our circumstances and our situations. And that's how we follow this road that Jesus has marked out for us. And that's all I got, the end. I'm not good at ending these kinds of sermons. But I hope that there's something for everybody in there, whether you're married, whether you're single. Serve, because that's what Jesus calls us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today and the opportunity just to hear from your word. And I pray for those of us who are married that we would focus on the blessings of marriage, that we would not allow the challenges to occupy our thoughts and our attentions and our fascinations, but rather we would nurture that interconnectedness. And for those of us who are single, I pray that we would not nurture the challenges of what our culture has to say sometimes about singleness, but rather we would find blessings in it, the way that you created singleness to be. That we would indulge that freedom for a greater good. That we would experience the blessings of being focused on you, of being flexible in our lives, and being free to just live independently. You created us. And I ask that whatever our circumstance might be, Father, that we would use our time and energies to honor you and to serve others, because that's the example Jesus set for us. And when we live that way, he's honored. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.